Looks like it's time to get started. Good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for coming out. I know uh, Wednesday is often the day that Vegas begins to finally hit you, and uh, I know getting up and, and getting out and attending a session in the morning can be a bit challenging, so appreciate you being here. Um, as the slide says, my name's Todd Golding, and I'm a partner solutions architect at AWS, and I'm actually part of a team that's called the SaaS Factory team, and we work with customers and partners that are involved in various stages of building and delivering SaaS solutions uh, on top of AWS, and just part of a shameless plug, I just definitely encourage you to go out, if you're just generally looking for more SaaS content, go out to AWS SaaS Factory, and you'll find a whole realm of, uh, of content out there from prior reinvents and white papers and blog posts a bits that will fill in lots of gaps for you that we won't be able to cover today. Now, one of the trends I've been seeing over the last few years, and I've sp spoken about it before, is this really um, strong move by SaaS organizations, especially startups and even uh, established uh, organizations who are saying we're very interested in the value proposition of serverless and what it does for SaaS environments. And they're very compelled to say, we'd really want to take advantage of all the goodness of, of a SaaS architecture delivered in a serverless model. We see all kinds of efficiencies there. And so what I thought I'd do this year is try to sit down and say, well, okay, I'm, I'm working with all these different organizations that are building serverless SaaS solutions. What's kind of an end-to-end -end kind of list of things that I could think about that you ought to be thinking about as you build a serverless SaaS architecture for yourself? It won't be a comprehensive list, but it's a lot of the sort of nuances and things that I see that are really important decisions I think I would have to make if I were sitting down and building my own serverless SaaS solution from from the ground up. So it won't, uh, ideally, you, you'll find bits and pieces in here that you could take away for yourselves and map to any serverless SaaS solution you might be building. Um, I will also highlight that this is a 400-level session. And so if you're brand new to SaaS or you're sort of brand new to AWS, we're not going to spend a lot of time sort of explaining fundamental concepts. We're just going to kind of dive in a bit here. We're going to look at a little bit of code. We won't be writing any code, although that would be kind of fun. Um, um, but but it, it leans that direction, so if that's, if that's not your orientation, by all means, um, you know, I'll understand if you, you want to find a session that's a better fit for yourself. Anyway, um, I do want to have just a single slide here that, that at least talks about the benefits of, of serverless and SaaS and the, the, the reason they're such a good fit for one another. I've done much longer and deeper presentations on this, but I generally want to move forward and talk more about the implementation. But still, I can't, I can't at least stop for a moment and talk about how, how compelling serverless is for SaaS and why it's compelling. Um, if you look at this really probably poorly drawn graph that uh, I've created on the left-hand side, this is my dream view as a SaaS architect, right? When I go out and I build a SaaS architecture for my organization, I'm thinking about the blue line here, which is, the actual activity of my tenants, which is changing and moving all the time, which tenants are in my system or in my, and how and when they're consuming the resources of my system, is this massive moving target. And then I've been asked as an architect, hey, can you build an architecture that will follow that line in a way that we aren't somehow over-provisioning resources and, and spending too much on the infrastructure of our solution? So in my dream world, this red line, which is my actual infrastructure that's needed to track that, the gap between that blue line and the red line would be as small as possible. And for me, no matter which stack you're building in, you're trying to get to this, but some stacks are much harder to do this with 
than others. And to me, this is where serverless shines. Serverless and the managed nature of serverless and the way that it, it sort of takes over scale for me and really lets me just write code, deploy code, and let it figure out how to scale it. It makes my microservices decomposition more interesting and simpler. It makes it easier for me to avoid situations where I'm worried about which policies I'll need to figure out when something can scale and how it should scale. That all becomes the job of Lambda. So to me, that alone is a compelling enough that it sort of draws me into the serverless space. But also there's a, a few bullets here that highlight some of the other areas I think it's really compelling. Just from an agility perspective, if you think about in SaaS environments, we're always looking for ways to move faster, to respond to the market faster, to build solutions that allow us to be more competitive as a business, and agility is often at the foundation of that. Well, if you look at the deployment model and, and a lot of the characteristics of a serverless architecture, they, they align very nicely with those agility goals. Cost optimization, I've kind of already hit on here, and operational efficiency, I tend to find that serverless SaaS organizations have a much smaller operational footprint, and the kinds of problems they're chasing tend to be uh, simpler than the ones I might in other environments. Blast radius is huge. Now when we decompose into these smaller bits, um, we find that, that if something breaks, the impact of that break will be much smaller, which is huge in an environment where I put all the tenants in a shared environment. If something goes down, I don't want that something that goes down to affect my entire system. And then the last one is the one nobody talks about that much, but really is the reason we do almost all of this is we wanna have more time to actually work on the features and the functions of our product and spend less of our time on the whiteboard trying to draw some architecture that'll deal with some scaling issue or come up with some policy that might be the right policy. I wanna be focused on the capabilities of my product and I feel like the serverless model frees me up from that. It's not a panacea, you're absolutely gonna to have to think about architecture and those bits, but I think it pulls me further away from that. I don't even have to think about servers now and when do they need to be patched and all those other things that come with potentially a more traditional environment. So that's my whole pitch on why I think these two align. There's a lot more depth to that discussion, but hopefully you can see the general alignment and the value proposition. Now let's dig in and start with the actual architecture. And I think we have to start here with just some view of what's the high-level architecture before we start drilling into the moving uh, parts of that architecture. And if you look at a serverless SaaS architecture, it's not wildly different than other architecture patterns that you see out there. We're mostly um, just moving towards a model where uh, the microservices of our environment are composed from individual uh, Lambda functions rather than uh, uh, running in maybe a container or they're running in some other environment. But if you were to sort of walk this high-level architecture top to bottom, you'd see here I have um, a web app, generally in, the modern, in a modern architecture here, we'll see people using Angular or React or some mechanism hosting that application in a S3 bucket and then letting the, basically letting that run all in the browser space. And then these applications or the APIs of these applications tend to come through the API gateway as their entry point into our actual services of our application. And then that API gateway essentially routes all the incoming requests to the underlying microservices. And I showed the microservices here as a collection of Lambda functions. You'll, we'll get into a discussion of that a little more deeply. And they're also, I've showed them encapsulating whatever storage they're managing, because that's just the, the value proposition and the tenants of microservices, right? They, they own the storage that they're managing. But 
if I just draw this diagram, it doesn't really show you all the moving parts of the other bits that are part of a, uh, of a really a SaaS architecture. And in this case, a serverless SaaS architecture, which is you have all these shared services you have to build that are more horizontal services that are all about supporting the, the sort of fundamental blocking and tackling of building a, a robust SaaS architecture. So I won't drill into each one of these, but obviously like registration, how do people sign up? How do they onboard? That's a whole new concept. It's not part of your core application and functionality. It's part of your SaaS experience. Um, how do we now have uh, an admin that's our own tenant admin? How do we go in and administer who the tenants are in the system and what their status is and do all those other bits that we have to now manage because we have many tenants in a shared environment? Um, how do we deal with billing and how now we're potentially a consumption-based billing model? We have to go write services that go do those bits. So um, as you think of the sort of scope of everything you have to do to go build a serverless SaaS architecture, think of it as the union of these two things. Okay, now we're going to sort of start from the either top-down or the outside-in or however you want to think of it. But I want to start sort of at the outer edge uh, some of these things will go deeper on than others, but I absolutely have to start with onboarding and identity. Almost any talk you see me talk about uh, architecture and SaaS architecture, you're going to hear me talk about onboarding and identity because onboarding and identity are the foundational sort of elements of setting the table for introducing tenancy into your entire architecture. So how do tenants sign up? How do they get introduced in the environment? And how do we create an actual identity for them that binds who they are as a user to the actual tenant they're working on behalf of. And that, if that mechanism that you build will flow through every part of this architecture, will get applied all through the layers of this different architecture, so you have to get that worked out. If you went away and just said, I'm gonna go write my serverless architecture, I'm gonna get it all working, and then eventually we'll introduce some notion of tenancy into that, uh, you're gonna rewrite everything. I've worked with multiple companies that have done that. Like, we're gonna be multi-tenant, but we have one real important customer first. We're gonna go write for them, and then after we write for them, we'll add it and make other people uh, uh, support it as tenants, and then they end up rewriting the whole thing. So even though uh, the, the mechanism isn't all that complex, it's super important. So I've just got a little walkthrough here. I've got a registration service that comes in. It's, I'm just representing it as one or more Lambda functions here that are responsible. I get a, a request in. That request goes out to some user management service that says, hey, I'm going to actually go orchestrate the creation of a user and their identity in the system. Uh, I'll go out to some identity provider and provision the actual identity of the user that's coming in and the tenant that's getting created here. In this particular case, I'm showing Cognito here. The reality of this, it could be Okta, Ping, Auth0, a number of different partner solutions here that could fill this gap. But essentially what I'm going to do here is I'm going to use a concept in Cognito called user pools, which essentially let you set up a set of policies and a grouping construct within which a group of users will live. Uh, and I'm going to do a user pool for each tenant. And that is a debatable point. Um, in some environments, a user pool per tenant is not a great fit because of the number of tenants you have. Uh, and other environments, awesome, because I can configure all these tenant-level things at that user pool level, like a password policy and um, uh, MFA and all kinds of other good goodies that I might want to configure on a tenant-by-tenant -tenant basis. So in this particular example, I have chosen to have a user pool per tenant. 
I'm going to provision the actual user. And then probably the most important thing in that little list of bullets there is custom claims. Custom claims are this open ID connect concept that lets me essentially say, have a set of properties and attributes that are, I can shove into the, to the actual uh, token that's gonna come out of this process, and there's where I can put my tenant identity, my role, my tier, all those other things that will be important to me downstream. So I get that provision to there. I'm also going to provision, well, I won't spend a ton of uh, time on this, this is a whole other area for a much deeper talk that I have on isolation, but generally I'm gonna have to go provision uh, the isolation footprint here, the policies and the roles and the other things that will need it by IAM to enforce tenant isolation here. And once I'm done with that, um, I can now come back and actually provision the tenant. And sometimes when people see this on this diagram, they'll think, well, you already, why are you provisioning the tenant? You just did that with the user. No, the tenant is separate from the user, right? In fact, after I'm done with this initial provisioning, I can have many users that end up connected to that tenant. But that tenant is still one global construct, which is what's the tenant identity, what status is that tenant, are they active or inactive, what tier are they part of, that's independent of whatever users they might be associated with. And then finally, you'll see this dashed line, and we're gonna go into this area more as we go forward, which is this notion of provisioning, which is I may need to go provision resources as part of this onboarding process as well. I may have to go provision infrastructure. Believe it or not, I might have to go provision more Lambda functions, depending on the model you choose for your serverless SaaS environment. And so we, we definitely want this to be a fully automated process so that when we're done, all the infrastructure and the identity and all those other bits have been created that are necessary for you to actually run the system. Now, we've got our uh, user provision. The next thing is the probably the most obvious and straightforward part, but I could, I, I'm gonna go through this one quickly because I think it's probably pretty basic for everybody. I've got to log in, I've got to get into the system. I'm certainly gonna go out through some authentication manager service because I'm actually gonna to have to resolve which user pool in, which is one of the bad parts of using user pool. Something actually has to resolve the user to the user pool to go be able to authenticate it. And then I'm gonna go out to Cognito and I'm gonna authenticate that user and back from that process will come the token. And that token will actually be enriched. It's just a JSON web token, it's just, Think of it as just a JSON uh, document that has, or JSON object that has essentially properties and values, some of which are standard to OpenID Connect. But also in there, you'll see in that web JSON web token, the JOT token, um, are my tenant ID and my role, and any other attributes that I've used to enrich this token to give me tenant context. And that token is going to be key to how you partition data, how you isolate tenants, how you do everything else downstream. But once we have that token out of that process, we'll flow that into the API gateway, and now we're sort of headed into the, to the actual capabilities of our service. But I wanna stop for a second at the API gateway because there's some multi-tenant things we need to think about at the actual API gateway level. Um, so as we come in here and our tenants come into the API gateway and this token we have now that comes into this API gateway is here, this is a first opportunity for us to stop and ask uh, what can we do at this level to sort of uh, implement our first layer of security? Because this is the entry point into all the services of our system, so what can I do here to enrich the security model of my system? And I actually have an opportunity here because I have this JOT token. I know who you are as a tenant, I know what role you're in, I know what tier you're in. I have that kind of data, so I can actually go use what is now, by the way, uh, called a Lambda authorizer, so 
Uh, this slide it should, needs to be updated. To rec this used to be called a custom authorizer. Now it's just called a Lambda authorizer. I somehow missed that along the way. Um, and this authorizer is essentially a Lambda function that will do whatever you want it to do. You're going to go write it, and, and in this case, we're going to say this Lambda function is going to crack open that JWT token that comes in. It's going to look at your attributes as a user, and it's going to say, hey, you're tenant one, you're in this particular role, you have this particular tier, I'm going to configure a set of policies for you that will say this, these are the routes that are valid for you as a tenant coming through this experience. So I will disable certain routes and I will enable certain routes. Well now I've already got some extra level of comfort from a security perspective here because you can't even get to some of the services uh, beyond the API gateway if you don't pass this, uh, this authorizer here. So for me, that's just a really good way at the outer edge to sort of uh, to put these barriers in place to make it uh, a more rich security model. There's also bits we can do here that are more multi-tenant oriented, which is as traffic comes in through the API gateway, I often have the need to say, hey, certain tenants may be saturating uh, the, the calls to the microservices. They may be impacting and creating noisy neighbor kind of situations. And I have these tenants, our basic tier, who are paying me $39.95 a month, and I have these uh, advanced premium tier kind of people that are paying me $10,000 a month. I certainly would like them to have different experiences as they come through this API gateway. At a minimum, I don't want the basic tier affecting the premium tier. And so here we have the option, I called it advanced tier here, should have, um, um, to use what are called usage plans. And usage plans essentially let us configure the policies and when throttling will get applied and things of that nature in the API gateway. And here I could have a set, two separate API keys, one for the basic tier and one for the advanced tier that would say, hey, your basic tier, your usage plan is X, and therefore you're gonna get throttled in these particular scenarios. Oh, your advanced tier, you're going to be allowed to consume more resources or have a slightly different experience. Super powerful option, a great way to differentiate the experiences of the, the consumers of your environment. Okay, so now finally, we can say we're beyond the API gateway what do I have to think about as I now make the move into the actual microservices and the sort of Lambda functions that are running my actual application? And if you remember earlier, I said we have to think about provisioning potentially as part of that onboarding process. And it turns out that both provisioning and isolation uh, are the first things I tend to want to think about as I think about what's going to be in my microservice layer. Because Ultimately, people are going to buy my product, and different tenants of my system are going to have different expectations of isolation. Some tenants will actually say, I'm good with whatever isolation, I trust that you'll get it right, and I just want features and functions, and I just want this thing to work, and I want to get a good value for my money. Other tenants are going to be, I'm in this highly regulated environment, I, I will not run your system unless you give me this very isolated experience. And then some people are kind of in between. I want this part of my experience to be isolated, but the rest could be shared by with everybody. And this directly influences how we choose to provision the microservices of our serverless SaaS environment. So if you look at this model here on the left-hand side, you will see that I've basically implemented what we call a silo method. Silo basically says, um, and all the resources or some of the resources that you're working with here 
are siloed for this tenant. Only this tenant will be running these resources. No other tenants will be sharing them. And in this silo model, I can do really powerful things with IAM. So what I can do here with each one of these Lambda functions deployed for each one of these tenants is when I deploy it and configure it and send it out into the world, I can attach an IAM execution role to that function. And now when that IAM execution role is attached to that function, there's no changing it. It defines the scope of what that function can do, what it can access, what resources it can touch, and it's core to my isolation strategy. Now, so if I have a tenant that's absolutely saying, I have to run and I have to be super comfortable that I won't get noisy neighbor problems, which are kind of weird in a, in a Lambda universe, because there's still only one tenant running in a function at a time, but people will still talk about noisy neighbor there. Um, um, and uh, and I really, uh, I really want this sort of comfort that there's a hard boundary between me and other tenants. This is an awesome drawing to show to somebody to say, you know, you're using the enriched features of IAM to draw these hard boundaries between these environments. Now, the opposite side of this, and the one we often target because we want the efficiencies of it, is what we call the pool model. The pool model is one where the resources are shared by all tenants. Okay, well now when I deploy one of these Lambda functions and I push it out into the universe, um, I can't deploy it with an execution role that is the execution role of a tenant, and I can't change the execution role at runtime in any way. Once it's deployed, it's deployed with that role. So I have no choice here but to deploy it with a much wider execution role that says you pretty much have free reign access to all the resources that are needed by these microservices for all tenants. Oh, well, now my isolation story is not so awesome over here, uh, or it isn't at least get all the goodness of IAM roles here that I got on the left-hand side. But what I want you to stop before we go forward and talk a little more about this and think about is, um, you, you probably, when you go away and build your system, you will have some notion of, okay, there's some set of tenants who want everything in the silo model, and we're gonna have to support that, and we'll deploy an entirely separate footprint for them, their own Lambda functions, everything. There'll be some who are saying, we're all good with the pool model, we're all in, we'll be there. But the reality is you will have some tenants who are, you can choose a set of services which are the premium services of your environment where isolation is the most important piece. Make those uh, isolatable on a per tenant basis or a per tier basis, and then run the rest of them in a shared model. So don't think of this as like, all or nothing, look for some in between, because I still prefer the pool model, because the pool model is easier for me to manage, it's easier for me to deploy, it gives me a much better agility sort of story to sell. So I'm always gonna be pushing for can, how much of the system can I run in that pooled model, and how much do I have to carve out and run separately in an isolation model. Well, let's dig in a little more to the isolation side of this, and look at how that isolation bit works. So here you say we had an execution role, and I'm actually drawn, by the way, um, storage and other services here, sort of all shared by these microservices. Conceptually, that's not a great drawing, only in that each microservice owns its own storage, but go with me for a minute. I'm mostly conveying how isolation works here, which is I have an execution role, and as I go to access an S3 bucket, or I go to access DynamoDB, or I go to access Redshift, or some other resource, that execution role will be applied to those Lambda functions, and it will scope my access to the other bits I want to touch. So now if I'm in as tenant one and I try to go touch a bucket that belongs to tenant two, it won't allow me to touch that bucket if I've done a good job with the role. 
So it's a super powerful construct. The other piece of this silo story, and you could argue this is not entirely a silo story, is um, this notion of reserve concurrency. And I want to uh, em emphasize the idea that this reserve concurrency is actually a mechanism that's super powerful in a tiering construct. So what is reserve concurrency? Well, the idea of reserve concurrency Interesting word to say many times. Concurrency is, uh, is that I can take for a function and say how many concurrent instances can be running for, of this function at any one time. And I can actually put a cap on it and say you can't have more than X number of these running concurrently. Now why do I care about that in a SAS model? Well, if I have these different tiers of my system, what I really want to be sure of is my premium tier users are never going to have an issue where there's noisy neighbor. This, to me, is where the noisy neighbor part comes in. If I have somebody in the basic tier who's hitting some function so hard that they're running all the way up against the bound of the concurrency of that function, because there are limits on concurrency no matter what, you have to, and you will run up against them potentially, um, I don't want some premium user now saying, hey, we're having the systems degraded for us, so we're not having a great experience. And it turns out it's because somebody in the basic tier is running too many concurrent versions of a function. And so what I encourage people to do here is say, think about how you can use this reserve concurrency and say, yes, here's the caps for the functions that are deployed in the basic tier. We'll deploy them that way. Uh, and we'll deploy some with a high, slightly higher cap, potentially, in my advanced tier. And then whatever's left from the big pool that's allocated all goes to the premium tier, and this will probably mean the premium tier, at least if there's degradation, is the last one to potentially see it. And you have to, with this model, you have to say, there may be a scenario where somebody in the basic tier sees some degradation, but I'm like, that's why you're paying, you know, your freemium or your $29.95 a month. If you're interested in not having that experience, feel free to move up to another tier. And to me, that's a really powerful construct. I, and I connect that, by the way, to isolation only because these tiers now would get deployed independently and provisioned independently. But now let's go back over to pool. We talked about roles and execution roles and how great they are in the, in the silo model, but we didn't really say anything about, well, what do we do now in the pool model where we have this more wide open security model? And we have multiple tenants now coming in and we somehow have to have an isolation context. We're not going to say, well, IAM can't do it, so we're done. We'll just let it be wide open. We still have to have isolation. So what we're going to do here is we're going to have these Lambda functions. They're now shared by all tenants. It's true that any one of these functions um, at any moment in time is ever going to be running just a single tenant. But don't confuse that with isolation. Because even if I'm coming in as tenant one and I'm the only one executing that function as tenant one right now, in the code of that function, Somebody could still write some code now, because it's wide open, to go touch some data from tenant two or tenant three or so on. So you aren't isolated just because one tenant can execute it at a time. So then we have to come up with some way to do this. And what I do is say, well, now you have to have some sort of convention or compliance where somebody says, I'll come in, I'll go out at runtime, and I'll resolve this to some token that is a token that will be the token that is the scope for this particular tenant at this particular time. And now I'll use that token, I'll come back, that token will flow through, and now I'll have code in here that says, as I go to access resources, I'm going to use this token that was given to me. It will scope my access to resources and limit my ability to see just those resources that are available to me as a tenant. And that's what you see 
here at the bottom, me accessing some resource, but now in the context of this particular experience. Not nearly as elegant as the silo model, but still mostly something that you can sort of hide away from developers, and we'll in fact talk about ways to hide this away from developers and just make it work. The other challenge here in this isolation story is uh, the fact that sometimes you will just have so many policies, so many roles, maybe there's a very unique uh, model you have where you're really pushing the limits of IAM, or it's just not as manageable as it could be because now you have 2,000 roles and every time you have to maintain them and manage them, it gets to be a little unwieldy. And so what some people are doing in this scenario is using what we call dynamically generated policies. So instead of going out to IAM and configuring an IAM and saving a policy and putting it there, what we're going to say is at runtime, we're actually going to dynamically define the policy or populate the policy and get the credentials for it in real time. So here, just like we had in the earlier slide where we went out and we said we're going to go get a token, this is still the placeholder for that. But now instead of going to IAM to get that token, I'm going to go out to something I'm calling a token vending machine. This, the idea is I'm gonna create you a token on the fly based on something dynamic. And that token vending machine is gonna go out to a set of policy templates that you've defined. And those policy templates are essentially saying, here's the template that's a placeholder for this isolation concept, but it's not in the context of any particular tenant yet. And then I'm going to say, okay, I've got this template back. Now pass the template along with the context of the current tenant we're working with to some token generator and say, hey, fill in all the details of this template for me and generate me an actual policy from that. And so now I'm gonna go into that template, I'm gonna populate the policy with this context, I'm gonna get that policy, and then I'm gonna get a token from that create a policy, and then finally that token will be returned back just like the token we did in the prior model where we got it from IAM. Now, there's still danger in this because you're now in the loop of creating and managing these policies. There's certainly opportunity for you to impact the security profile, but you can get really good scale out of this and very, really good manageability out of this. So I wouldn't advocate this as a way that something everybody should do, but I also have to face the reality that some people run into limits that where they need an alternate strategy, and this is a good strategy for that. Let's look a little bit more of what that might look like. So here's a policy template on the left-hand side with DynamoDB, and that DynamoDB is just controlling access to some, um, some table in here. And you'll see I've bracketed some items. I've sort of projected what this template might look like with curly brackets, kind of like Angular or any one of the sort of template-based libraries that are out there. And I've said these are the areas where I will substitute context. And the most important one we'll look at is the bottom there where you'll see a condition and you'll see leading keys and you'll see a little bracketed tenant ID down there. And that's where we're going to say now, I have this template, now let's actually go create a policy instance of that template where we inject all of the actual context and now you'll see I've got an actual tenant ID in there, I've got a resource, I've got these other bits. Now this is a fully formed policy and I can go generate and get a token using this policy. Uh, I'll do Q&A at the end, unfortunately, sorry. Um, just have to move through this. Um, um, now, I've just put a little snippet of code here to give you an example of what this looks like. Some of the different SDKs uh, on AWS give, re give you mechanisms to make this simpler. So here in this particular example, I've got a get credentials 
uh, model, it takes a policy as an incoming construct, and that policy is essentially that policy we just created. And then I create, get a federation token request, which into which I get the JSON version of that policy, and I put it into that request. Now I instantiate the, uh, the token STS service here that's gonna be used to make the call to go get my token. And now I actually say, go get me a federation token, passing that request in, and back comes a response. And that response should be my token. And so now I'll poke into that response, response.get a federation token result, dot credentials you'll see at the bottom of the function there. That's where I actually pull those credentials out of that token, and I return those credentials back. And now those are the credentials I'm going to use to access whatever resource I try to access, and they will now have my tenant context. Ex your sort of experience is gonna vary here based on the stack you're in, but this is all achievable. Okay, so we've looked at the outer edge here so far and said, um, like what just generally as I deploy my Lambda services in a SaaS environment, how do I provision them? How do I come up with an isolation story that would work with them? Now let's actually look at what it means to build a microservice in a serverless SaaS model, right? And one of the questions that comes up over and over again is people will say, well, isn't a Lambda function a microservice? And technically a Lambda function absolutely could be a microservice. But the reality is if you look at most, the scope of most microservices, they tend to have a series, a, a collection of Lambda functions. In fact, if you look at the source code of any solution, you'll tend to find like here's five or six or eight functions that are all in one file together. And when they get deployed, yes, they get turned into Lambda functions, but I'm working on them collectively. And that's really the scope of my microservice. It just happens to emit five or eight uh, functions as part of the deployment here. And so I describe what I call sort of a logical microservice here, which is the, a composed set of Lambda functions that represent the functionality and the scope of that particular microservice. So here I've got an order management service, and I've got a catalog management service here, and they are both made up of multiple Lambda functions, but they still expose a contract that is the contract for this service. And this collection of microservices gets versioned and deployed and, and some people will, in fact, deploy all of the Lambda functions every single time they'll deploy this service. You don't have to do that. You certainly can deploy individual functions, but they generally create them and treat them as a single unit of deployment and a single microservice. And they also encapsulate whatever data, and that's the most important part of this, they encapsulate and manage a scope of data that belongs to that microservice. And usually the scope of that data is bigger than one function, which is why we need to have this notion of a logical microservice. Now where it gets more interesting is you say, oh cool, we got these microservices, they're made up of multiple functions, but what do we actually do when we go to write one of these, uh, one of these functions? Like what does it mean to go write a multi-tenant serverless microservice, right? And what you will see me say in almost every talk I give is my goal uh, for any developer working in a serverless sorry, in a SaaS environment, any SaaS environment, is to say that I don't want developers thinking about multi-tenancy. If somebody's sitting down to build a new microservice and all through their code of that microservice, they're thinking about, oh, I gotta get the tenant ID and because I have the tenant ID, I do this specific thing now with the tenant ID and I see tenant context all through the, sort of the internals of my, my code, that is not gonna be a manageable experience. It's not gonna be a productive experience. 
And so what we try to do here is do what any good developer would do. This is not magic, it's not special, but we're gonna say take all those concepts that are multi-tenant concepts and take them out of the view of developers. Push them out to the edges, use frameworks, use libraries, use whatever you have to do. Don't get super heavyweight. These don't have to be like, go away for six months and build a logging framework for multi-tenancy or metrics. They're just saying conceptually move those things to the edge and whatever's multi-tenant about them, take it out of the view of the developer. And I just took a really simple example here and said, uh, some, pick some common areas that I've seen uh, where we've, we've built sample solutions, where we've used multi-tenancy. Um, logging and metrics, for example, need tenant context. In fact, a lot of people right now are mining multi-tenant SaaS systems, and then when they go look in their logs, they don't have any tenant context in their logs. So I'm like, how do you figure out what happened, right? So you have to have tenant context in your logs. Well, that's not a big deal, but somebody still has to know how to get the tenant context out of the incoming request and inject it into the log. I don't want the developer thinking about that. I just want them to say log and have it go do whatever it's gotta do. Record a metric. Way more people should be recording metrics in their environments. Lots of talk about this. Well, same thing as logging. When I record a metric, I want it. I want it to be, to hide the details of multi-tenancy away. And then the last one, um, partition data access. There's all these different ways we talk about, we won't be able to do it here, but talk about how data can be partitioned in a multi-tenant SaaS environment. Well, I don't want the developer figuring out, hey, I'm in the QA environment, uh, and the isolation scheme here is a table per tenant, uh, so I will go figure out how to find the specific resource for this tenant I'm supposed to talk to so that I can do this uh, particular operation. No, I just want the tenant to say, go get products or go get orders, and whatever's in that layer on the other side of that will say, oh, you're tenant X, you're in the QA environment, you're using DynamoDB in a siloed model for data, I'll go resolve that to the table name you should be using and give that back to you and your operation just works. Now, one of the ways uh, we have used and, and started to demonstrate to others to use, in fact, there's a builder session that uses this here, there's a workshop uh, serverless, uh, sorry, monolith to serverless SaaS, that's an awesome workshop going here where we do this. And la we're basically using Lambda layers as the mechanism to implement these horizontal shared concepts to move this tenant awareness away from developers. And Lambda layers, if none of you have seen that, Lambda layers were really introduced as a really cool mechanism to just say, hey, we have all these modules or these shared files that are being used across all these different functions. I don't want to have them deployed into, with every single function. So they introduced this notion of layers where you could put the shared construct there, reference it, and then all the functions that needed it could just call it in uh, reference it, it gets versioned separately, it gets deployed separately, and so if I make a change to the shared construct, all the, all the different functions that reference it uh, will be able to get that updated version. And you can imagine that mechanism, which it, while it wasn't created for our nice little SaaS pr uh, problem, is an awesome fit for that problem. So now what we can do is say, hey, I've got a product service, I've got an order service, I don't want them to know anything about multi-tenancy, I'm gonna go create this layer and I'm gonna push into this layer the code that, is, that has all these common sort of multi-tenant contexts. And I'm gonna show you a really narrow scope for that to make it fit in the slides, but you can imagine more code going into these layers for your SaaS environments. So here I'm gonna take this logging manager and metrics manager that I talked about, and I'm going to call the logging manager from here and say log some message, or I'm gonna call the metrics manager and manage it, and I'm just going to take the JOT token that came into me as a service, I don't care what's in it. As a product service, I'm going to say log a message. Here's the context, I don't know what's in it. 
and I'm going to send it over to the logging uh, manager. The logging manager is going to go to some token manager. The token manager will deal with all the signing and all the other good things that you have to deal with, crack open the, the token, get your tenant ID, inject it into the logging um, um, call, and log with tenant context. Nothing voodoo, nothing special about that, but a really big win for this as you look across all the different services you're going to write and the amount of multi-tenant code you've pulled out of those services. And again, I mentioned like the data access piece of this, that actually can become a really robust part of this as well. So what does this look like as we land in actual code here? I've got a little node example here that I had, I'm working on. This will actually get published relatively soon, hopefully. Um, and on the left-hand side, you'll see the view in the IDE. You'll see where I've sort of highlighted layers in Node.js. And in that folder, you'll see the log manager, the metrics manager, the partition manager, uh, and the token manager in there. And then below that, you'll see the actual services, the order manager and the product manager service. And essentially, that folder with layers is obviously all that code that's going to get deployed and eventually pushed into a layer in my environment. And then the product manager, I just pulled a snippet out of the top of the product manager on the right-hand side, where you can see how I, I define and, and indicate references to those, uh, those libraries that are deployed into the layers. So log manager, token manager, metrics manager all get referenced here. And it looks just like any other dependency you'd put in any file. However, you'll notice the prefix of the file names have this particular convention, slash opt, slash node.js. And what you'll find with layers is that layers requires you to use a specific convention for that, fo that prefix so that it knows how to resolve where to find those things. So that isn't the folder name as it lives on your local box. It's the folder as it gets deployed into Lambda. And if we go a little further with this and dig into the token manager, we'll walk into the token manager here and you'll see um, we'll basically have a get tenant ID here. You'll see it gets an event passed into it which has the headers in it, so we'll pull the authorization header out of it. Um, and then in that authorization header, we'll actually poke in and parse out the JOT token uh, in our try block there. And then we'll, we'll um, unpack it using a signing key. Now, um, you'll notice I've done the least secure thing I possibly could do here, which is I just put some signing key, which is some GUID up there, which is shared by both the client and the server. Nothing secure or production ready about that. It was a way to get a piece of development code to work. In reality, you'll, you need to resolve that signing key with a, a much more robust mechanism. Um, and then ultimately, after I unpack it, you'll see that I poke into that token, I get into the verifiedjot.body.tenantID, and that actually gets my tenant ID back and I pass that back. Well, there's not a whole lot of code there, there's nothing magic, but I don't want that code 30 places all across the different functions of my solution. The last piece of this is the payoff, right? I keep saying I want the developer to have a great experience, so I just took this order manager, and I took, you'll see there's a get function here and a put function here, and when you look at this, you'll see log manager under, under the get, it says log with tenant context, and it passes event as the first parameter and does the same thing inside the put function here as well. That logging message is doing exactly what we just talked about. It's calling the layer, it's passing the log message, constructing a message, passing the event through, and it's done. There's no tenancy, the word tenant appears nowhere in this function. And down below, if we would have had time to dig into the partition manager, you'll see I have a data access layer, and that data access layer, when it says go get order, it actually goes off to a layer and it figures out, well, where am I supposed to get that order from based on who you are as a tenant? 
well, my code doesn't look at all like it knows anything about multi-tenancy here. It's just code. And again, it wasn't not magic as much as powerful and impactful too, and, and it promotes productivity in your implementation. Now, I said earlier when we talked about as part of building these microservices, there are things you could do to try to sort of enforce convention and get developers to kind of go along with it. In fact, we talked about that specifically in the pooled model where we were saying we have to go create this token and we have to uh, create that token uh, sort of on the fly because we have this wide open context. Well, we can take a Lambda function and we can put essentially a wrapper around that Lambda function. Uh, and that wrapper, depending on your language, could look wildly different, uh, java.net, node, everybody has their own sort of approach to doing this. But conceptually, what we're trying to do with the wrapper is say, as I come into the Lambda function, there will be some kind of pre-processing that happens that's outside the view of the author of that Lambda function, and there will be some post-processing after that Lambda function runs, and I can control what happens at those steps, and every developer will just get that pre and post-processing. So you can imagine that pre-processing step is a great opportunity for me to go get that token we talked about earlier. So instead of the developer inside their function going and resolving where, that, where that's at, I can actually go resolve it at the intercept with my own little library. It'll go out, get the token, and it'll actually pass that token into the function, and the function will just use it as if, if this is the scope I'm supposed to use. So to me, it's a, it's a, it's a handier way to get compliance and convention introduced in a way that other people do this. By the way, if you go look at most of the observability tools, management monitoring tools for the serverless space, because they can't use agents and other mechanisms that were classically used, you'll see them using a wrapper mechanism to go instrument your environment, to go get metrics for Lambda functions. Um, so uh, you look at um, any one of those solutions, they're using some variant of this. And by the way, because of this, there's lots of good sample code out there on how to use and write uh, and leverage wrappers on your own. And then I did, if we have a pre-processing step, we could also obviously have a post-processing step. So if I'm recording any metrics that are kind of global metrics here, and I just want very tenant-specific metrics to be captured, you can imagine I could initialize counters or meters or anything I want at the beginning of this function. At the end, I could post-process them and emit them, and I could emit them with tenant context, which is super valuable. So I'm not just saying this function ran for for 30 milliseconds, I'm gonna say this function ran for tenant one or and tier uh, advanced for 30 seconds. That's more valuable to me. And then I just put a little snippet of code here. We won't dig into this very much, but essentially you can see this is a Node.js. By the way, I, it looks like I'm Node heavy. I'm a fan of all languages here. You pull in the requirements to reference whatever modules you need to refer to. You introduce this assume role code here, and then this wrapper will actually then do the lambda.run, which will invoke your function. And then after it runs your function it, on the exit, if there's an error, you can put some code there. If not, you can do your post-processing there that you want to record whatever metrics, whatever bits you want. Nothing exotic about this. Now, the other piece here that I want to really uh, sort of emphasize, and I do a whole talk here on service decomposition for, micro, uh, for SaaS environments, and that sort of blends its way into this environment as well, because uh, we're not going to go deep there, but I do want you to think about the fact that now that you're in a serverless SaaS model, how would that affect the scope and the boundaries and the size of the microservices that you build? And if you think about classically how we've done this, 
Um, if you go build for a traditional container or an EC2-based model of, of, of scale, um, you're going to create a service, and that service is going to have a, a series of uh, entry points into it. And if one of those entry points happens to push the service a ton, let's say put or delete just saturates the service in some way, and the other functions are barely moving the needle, my only option and my only unit of scale here is the whole service and the whole chunk of functionality here. So I spin up another container or another EC2 instance. And by the way, I have to write the policy that manages that scale. So it's my job now to figure out how and when it scales. And by the way, tenants are coming and going, and how they're consuming this day-to-day -day is different. So I'll probably change that policy every three weeks, or I'll write something that over-visions the environment so I don't have to touch it anymore, which is entirely against the little graph I drew at the beginning. Now you take this exact same model, and you say, what does it look like if I'm in a, in a, um, and a Lambda serverless SaaS model, where these same functions are there, but now each one is a separate function. So the get, the put, the post, each of them correlate to a separate Lambda function. Well, now what's my unit of scale? Well, each function's gonna scale independently. So if you weren't using any of the functions but one, I won't be paying for anything but that one function uh, uh, that's running. And if that function really wants to push really hard, uh, for some period of time, I'll let Lambda scale it as it needs to scale. My unit of scale now is an individual function within that microservice, or individual functions in that microservice. And now that changes my thought process when it comes to decomposition. Whereas the top model, I might have said, oh, I'm gonna break, delete, or put, or whatever's getting saturated out and make that a separate microservice so I don't end up with this noisy neighbor problem. Down below, if one of them gets saturated, I don't know that I'll still break it apart. I mean, I'll just let Lambda scale based on where it's at. Now, maybe I'll, there's some reason I'll ultimately decide to break it out, but I, my rationale for breaking it out is entirely different in the serverless SaaS model than it would be in a traditional model. No policies, by the way. I, I missed the big payoff there. No policies. You're not writing policies. You're not chasing scaling policies here. You're just letting Lambda scale. Really, where decomposition gets most interesting here is when you start talking about the data. Most of the people who are doing serverless SaaS and they're trying to figure out where the boundaries of their services are, are thinking more about how do I need to represent the data? Because the service is supposed to encapsulate the data and the data can be represented in different ways depending on the isolation needs and the performance needs and the, and the compliance needs of that individual service. And so we get into these different models of data partitioning, which we can't cover today, where um, each tenant gets their own environment. Or we even have issues like in this middle one I talk about, um, what people in server, SaaS environments are always chasing this challenge of how big should my uh, instance be for my, for my database? Well, it depends today, and this, this particular tenant might not need as big of an instance as that. So you get into these models where the, the nature of how data needs to be isolated, how it needs to perform, will drive your microservices decomposition. Uh, and so I, I challenge you to sort of look there and then also think about agility as you're doing that, right? If I can get to a data footprint where all the data is in a shared construct, like you see on the far right-hand side, where I have a table and all the tenants are in that table and they're just indexed somehow. The update of that, the deployment of that, the management of that is much simpler. So I'm always gonna be thinking about that as I'm carving apart my microservices. Can I get to that shared model? Or at least can I carve these microservices out to get them into that model? Because that will make my life easier. 
Oh, so I read something just before I came in here uh, that was announced, I think, yesterday or something about, um, well, I'm even going to mess the word up, provision, provision concurrency. So I wrote this about pre-warming functions. So one of the challenges you have is potentially could have a function that you just need to warm and, you, and, it's, and the start of that function is too slow in Lambda for you um, because of some workflow in your system that you decide the only way to get the performance you want is to pre-warm that function. And the way that you implement that pre-warming is through CloudWatch. You'll go create a CloudWatch event. There are other ways to do it, but this is the common way you'll see you do it. That CloudWatch event will go off on a timed basis. It'll call the function with a null call. You have to handle the null call correctly in your function, and that will keep it warm by calling it periodically. This entirely violates our over-provisioning mindset. So we don't want to be just wildly pre-warming everything. Uh, uh, we only want to pre-warm a few things that we think are key bottlenecks in our system, are key areas where this could be an issue. In fact, in a multi-tenant SaaS environment, it's very likely that, uh, that you have so many tenants using so much of the system that there's not going to be a big body of functions that are not somehow being accessed and not warm. Now, provision concurrency apparently, and I don't quote me on this because I just read it two seconds ago, um, lets you pick some functions and I can think you can provision concurrency so they are, these functions are identified as sort of ready and hot and ready to go and it sort of overcomes the need for this mechanism. Go read on it at a minimum, I need to go read on it more. The last area I want to talk about real quickly here is storage, because we do all this cool stuff around compute with serverless, and we talk about no more servers, and we get all this great efficiency, and all these other awesome bits, and then we finally get down to the storage, and what we find is we have instances, and we have servers again, and somewhere in the process we have to say, how big should this server be, and guess what we have to do? We over-provision because we have to handle the fact that on some particular day, the tenants using that particular database are going to saturate it. And so, you know, fortunately, we've seen evolution here where, where now the storage tiers are starting to embrace the notion of serverless as well. And one of the examples of this is Amazon Aurora Serverless. So Aurora Serverless basically says, you can consume this just like you consume any other MySQL database. It's not going to change the way you write your code at all. But now you don't go pick an instance. You don't tell me ahead of time, this is the instance that's going to store my data. Instead, you configure it, and then it, based on actual load, will figure out how much compute you really need to process the loads you're putting on that database. And that, to me, is awesome. That is, takes the notion of an instance out of my view. And by the way, I, now I'm into a model where I'm also just paying for consumption. If I'm not calling those databases, I'm not paying for some instance sitting there that's not being used. So for me, this is super compelling. I can't go really deep on it. By the way, you're still going to pay for the storage just like you'd always pay for storage here, so there's no notion of storage somehow getting cheaper as a result of that. But it extends the reach of your serverless model all the way down into data. And to me, that can't be a bad thing for a SaaS environment. So what are some of the key takeaways here? Um, I hope you can see how, like, we, the resiliency of this model, the agility of this model. We couldn't go super deep into resiliency uh, and DevOps here. I would have loved to go much deeper there. But generally, um, this serverless sort of mindset just lines up so naturally with a lot of the goals we have as a SaaS organization. Um, Absolutely, the isolation model of your tenants, you have to think about what their isolation model is, and you have to ask yourself how that isolation model might change the way you deploy and provision the individual microservices of your environment. 
Um, and by all means, consider the hybrid models. Don't be all or nothing. Think about the fact that some, some services might be silos, some might be pool, and try to push them to pool when you can. Push them to pool. That's interesting. <laughs> push them to P-O-O-L. Um, anyway, um, you have to put uh, account limits in your mindset here. How many, how many policies do you need? How many roles do you need? What's going to fit for your model? And be sure you think of those limits instead of sort of running into them after you've already built your solution. And then by all means, we beat this one to death, hide the details of multi-tenancy away from developers. Like use layers, use whatever mechanism you want, use what's good language construct for you, but don't put those details all in your code. Um, and then um, I think you can see generally how this serverless model also gets at aligning consumption and activity between tenants in a much better model. Uh, and I think you could see there's a big value prop to that in a way that might make you write at least part of your system in a serverless model. So uh, here at reInvent, we are Wednesday, but there's still a lot going on. Um, there's uh, more breakouts going on. There's chalk talks across a range of talk. I know I'm going over this afternoon, or coming here actually this afternoon, to do monolith to serverless SaaS as a chalk talk. Other members on my team are doing more chalk talks. There's a workshop, there's a hands-on work, SaaS workshop that's end-to-end -end build one, and there's a monolith to serverless SaaS, a brand new workshop we just created that takes you through a lot of the mechanics of what we talked about here today. Uh, and then there's a builder session. Also, finally, don't forget, uh, check out certification while you're here. If you aren't certified, it's a great opportunity to, to check it out and get certified. And that's it. Thank you so much. Have a great conference. <laughs>